0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey guys, the other people podcast is offered freely. All episodes of this program are available for free. More than 500 episodes and counting. There is an official other people app that too is free. It's all available for free. Your support makes a difference. If you would like to support this show, you can do so at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Thanks. You are not alone. You have found other
1: people. You and I have a friend in common.
0: Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it like your head exploded seeing what was really there.
1: And now here's your host, Brad Listie.
0: Just one person at just one time. I don't know. Hello, everybody. How's it going? Right. Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. It's good to be with you. I am in Los Angeles. I'm in Los Angeles. <laughs> I don't know why I just, like, paused there. But uh, Amanda Stern is my guest today. She has a new memoir out from Grand Central Publishing. The book is called Little Panic, Dispatches from an Anxious Life. And I had uh, such a good time hanging out with Amanda Stern. I will say she came over here in the midst of a pretty severe allergy attack, so she was coughing a lot. And I just want to state for the record that I painstakingly edited out every single cough, I believe, or most coughs, almost every cough from this interview. So that you guys can hear this conversation uninterrupted and so that Amanda will not be notorious in the history of this program for being the person who wouldn't stop coughing. She was so much, she was so much fun. I really enjoyed, uh, our time together and I'm, I'm happy for her. I've known, I've known of Amanda, I've cyber known Amanda for a lot of years, like 15 years. And I feel like we sort of have followed similar tracks in that we did, you know, we did slash do these kinds of ancillary things in the literary community. We keep ourselves really busy doing all these different things and and they kind of function as elaborate procrastination rituals. We really want to be writing. And yet we also like doing these other things. Many of you may know that Amanda hosted and ran the happy ending reading and music series in Manhattan for, I think it was in Manhattan or in New York City, in the greater metropolitan area for a long time. It launched in 2003, and I believe it just wrapped recently in conjunction or somewhat in conjunction with the publication of this book. So there's lots to talk about. There's lots of coughing, but you won't hear it. And I uh, I don't know. I had fun. I had fun talking to Amanda. I'm glad to catch her at this moment in her life, and I'm happy to share this conversation with you. Here she is, folks. This is Amanda Stern, and her book is called Little Panic, Dispatches from an Anxious Life.
1: What I attempted to do was to write an autobiography of an emotion. So that meant I had to write an autobiography of my life, which was embarrassing, but it sort of had to happen. Um, I was working on several novels, um, at the same time. Um, and my own story kept on infecting the work I was doing. And I... Like all um, of a
0: sudden you pop up.
1: Yeah, just my anxiety started to rear its head. And I, um, I had these evaluations uh, from my childhood that I really wanted to use. And I kept on finding ways to put them into the novels.
0: Like written evaluations? Mm-hmm. From, by teachers or...?
1: Um, by therapists, Um and i guess educational administrators and they run throughout the book and so i wanted to use those in some way and they kept on showing up in my the novel i was writing and so i would stop and i'd start a new novel and again I, the evaluations would show up and then i would i would begin to appear um as a character in these novels and i tried everything i could to avoid writing a memoir and at a certain point, I realized I'm not going to be able to get through a novel until I get this story out. So I might as well just write the story on the side. You know, take a week and just write it. And so I started to do that, and um, it just felt good. And it I, it felt like I was I was writing something larger than than just getting something off my chest, right? And um, I just kept going with it, and I finally sent the first hundred pages to Bill Clegg, and he said, "Yeah, this is this is something." And I showed him the novels or a piece of one novel, and he was like, "Yeah, this is something else, and it's not the thing that you should be working on.
0: Huh. The memoir
1: is what you should be working on." Isn't it
0: weird how we can sometimes like avoid ourselves, or you sort of do everything. But the thing you should be doing before you finally get to the thing that you should be doing.
1: <laughs> yeah, I feel like most of my life is that. I feel like happy ending, in a way, was a, was just avoidance.
0: Is that what this podcast is? I sometimes have that thought.
1: I don't want to tell you what <laughs> it is. You're going to have to figure that out for yourself. But I will say yeah. that doing happy ending brought me a lot of pleasure. And it was deeply fulfilling for an aspect of me. And but for
0: I... people listening, what is Happy Ending? Oh, sorry. Just so we don't get confused.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's what they think it is. Yeah, right. um, <laughs> now, it is a music and literary event that I founded, curated, and hosted from 2003 um, until, well, the last one, the very last one I just did a couple of weeks ago. Um, so I took a hiatus in the middle, but I had authors come and read um, from their books and then I required them to take a risk on stage. So they had to do something they've never done before. And it was my attempt to sort of humanize the author for the audience. Um, Musicians came and they played five original songs and then their challenge was to play um, the cover song of their choice and try and get the entire audience to sing along. And then I had a live artist on stage who drew the entire event and it was projected in real time on a screen for the audience um, to watch as like visual subtitles. And each episode, each um, event had a theme and I hosted them and um, they were really fun and funny and I loved it. Um, I'm <laughs> trying so hard not to cough. It's really difficult. Amanda's <laughs>
0: but, struggling with some allergies. Yes. There's Robitussin right in front of her. She's got <laughs> Robitussin in front of her, multiple bottles of water. <laughs>
1: and ricola
0: and ricola unwrapped yes, ready to go ready to go which
1: i can't really do because then i'm i, I can't be talking on um, a podcast with uh, a cough uh, drop on i right mean now.
0: theoretically i guess you could it would add an element to the delivery though that's
1: true i'm taking off my shoes now i'm going to sit up on a leg <laughs> so that i feel taller okay. and more like an adult yeah um anyway i i used happy ending as a vehicle to avoid Uh, doing my own work because I felt, oh, well, I've tapped into this thing that people seem to like. And I'm using my personality, which I've developed from a very young age to misguide people into thinking that I'm well. And um, and, um, I'll just go with this so that uh, I don't really have to face myself or my work. And I won't be judged for being less than I fear that I am. And I did that for about 13 years. And when when authors would make a return appearance at Happy Ending, I would think, okay, um, I'm still doing this, and they're now on their second book. Yeah. If I'm still doing this on their third book, then I really need to reassess my entire life. So they'd return for the third book, and I would <laughs> think, time to deeply reassess they my dad. Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but then I killed them. Um, and that's the risk I took. Yeah. You know, um, so I, you know, I did, a, a friend literally had kind of an intervention with me. And we went to a Chinese restaurant, you know, cause I'm Jewish. And, uh, she sat me, that was a joke. <laughs> and she, she, um, you can always laugh when a Jew tells a Jew joke. Just okay. FYI. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> so I, she sat me down and she was like, okay, let's figure out the plan for the rest of your year. And I said, okay, uh, what do you mean? And she's like, well, when are you going to stop happy ending? and, and, you know, work on your book.
0: Is this this is what's going to eventually happen to me? I'm going to be the one to. So, do. are there people waiting outside to I, intervene? You know what? I want you to focus. <laughs> is that I don't what want, this want is? you to don't want
1: you to worry about them. <laughs> <laughs> they're they're using the kitchen. They're fine. <laughs> one of them's lost in the bathroom trying to figure out the light. Don't you worry. I'll be here. I'll hold your hand.
0: But listen, you were performing a valuable service to your audience and to the writers and musicians and you know visual artists who were participating.
1: Sure. That's not nothing. No. But I like, didn't say it was nothing. Okay. It just wasn't... Um, it was something. It was something for me. It was something for them. I don't know what it was for them, but I do know that it was something. And I was fulfilled. But what fulfills me more... And what I've wanted to do for almost my entire life is to be a writer. But I was so filled with fear and like preemptive shame and anxiety that I just couldn't face it. So I just learned to roll it on, you know, like sort of use happy ending as a way not to do it.
0: Hmm. a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So your book is called Little Panic. Yes. And for people listening, um, you know, you should probably explain a little bit more about being unwell and what that actually means. Yeah. So what what is the struggle?
1: Well, at the moment, <laughs> I have allergies with a, with a pinch of cold. Um, so I grew up with an undiagnosed panic disorder. And I have been having panic attacks since I was uh, an infant. And an infant? An infant. Wow.
0: Um,
1: and um, I went 25 years without knowing what was wrong with what is me.
0: A, what does a panic attack in an infant look like? Is it like Very colicky? Very different.
1: If- No. Um, I mean, maybe, but I don't remember. Yeah. Um, I don't know what it looks like. I know what it feels like. When you're an adult and you have a panic attack, you have references for different types of ways to die. And so you attach those ways to die onto your symptoms. But when you're a child, you don't have those references. So it doesn't take on sort of larger... Proportions. You don't feel like, oh, I'm having a heart attack and I'm dying. You just feel like the world is unsafe, and the unsafeness of the world is inside your body, and you're filled with dread. You can't really breathe. You, you're, all the symptoms that happen happen. You know, you, um, shallow breathing. You get dizzy. I would float away all the time. It's called depersonalization. Where you sort of rise out of your body
0: is depersonalization the same as like dissociate? dissociation? Association, yeah. yeah, it's dissociation.
1: Um, and so I would, yeah, leave my body um, like in a cool sci-fi film and float up, but I didn't get paid for it. So.
0: Did you see? Could you like like what was the like? How does that actually manifest? You you disassociate, you float out of your body. Are you actually in like some co- sort of aerial perspective looking? Yeah,
1: you're looking down, and you see it's like a you're watching yourself in a scene. You see your body, and you see yourself in the third person, because what's happening to you is in the first person is so overwhelming that you can't bear it. It's unbearable.
0: And why is it overwhelming? Do you feel like maybe people who have panic disorder, because um, I, I have some friends who struggle with this, and it's like I feel like they there's, there's like a valve that's open too much, mm-hmm. and they're just receiving
1: too much information. Too much
0: information, more than the average person. And that's where the overwhelm comes from. Is that accurate? Or yeah,
1: I mean, I think that what happens, especially when you're younger and you have it, is that you're you do feel like you're dying, but it's a different type of death. It's not. Uh, it's not that your body is killing you. It's that the world is killing you. So, and no one can see it, and no one can help you, and you don't know how to talk about it, and you don't know how to. You don't have the emotional vocabulary to say help. I'm this dissociating. Is, right. <laughs> so. <laughs> basically uh let me think what happens is i felt like the sensation i can describe is that i was being dragged by my ankles towards some bottomless like hellscape black infinity pool of hell and i'd be dropped in there and disappear and i um I would literally feel it. I would feel myself pulled towards this endless death um, that was in the world, and I didn't know how to stop it, and I didn't know how to get anyone else to stop it. And I also had that same fear organized around my mom. So I was I was terrified she would die or disappear if I wasn't watching her. I had to watch her at all times, and if which meant going to school was how, very difficult. How long
0: did this? How long did this? Wow! she's right outside (laughs) (laughs) she's idling in the car (laughs) (laughs) Um,
1: (laughs) I drugged her just so she could come to LA with me Um, this went on until um, I mean in some ways forever it just changed shape and it it decreased because I um, learned what I had and I took medication and I started to get treated for it but When you go untreated for so long, what happens is that you... Like, my anxiety disorder grew up and had babies. And, you know, I had all these little infant disorders. I had depression. I had social anxiety. I had, you know, agoraphobia. And it changes. And it becomes manageable, hopefully. Um, It did for me. But I couldn't um, let her go. And I couldn't go to my dad's house for the weekend, without
0: your parents were split up
1: mm-hmm. but both um, in new york yeah my dad lived uptown my mom lived downtown and it was a different universe my dad was very uh formal and um he lo- very well mannered and um how you look was very important and we had different wardrobe for uptown we brushed our hair for uptown we <laughs> brushed our teeth yeah, wow I, I mean he made us do insane things yeah. um, <laughs> have you heard of a bath
0: <laughs> yeah it's, it's, it's we had to do it truly incredible
1: unreal i mean very violent um <laughs> in downtown you know we were like barefoot heathens and i mean i look in i showed a picture of myself at four to my therapist a long time ago and she said you know what this makes me want to do and I said no, and she said, "Call Child Protective Services." <laughs> <laughs> and he was sort of making a joke. It was, was your just...
0: mom like a Bohemian, or
1: yes? And okay. like my hair wasn't brushed for the first I don't know nineteen years of my life. Um, all right, so or today, <laughs> um, but it was, um, yeah, it was a struggle. It was a, a, a struggle.
0: So let me ask you something. Like uh, there, uh, there's a genetic. I would say that that's the predominant component. Mm-hmm. This is your neurochemistry. Yes. Uh, is there a nurture environment at all? Or a nurture element at all to this? Yes. 100%. 100%. Because a couple of things come to mind. Like I can imagine as a child uh, where your parents are split up, maybe that's anxiety inducing. But I'm also now thinking of friends of mine who have struggled with panic disorder. And I want to say all of them are Jewish. And that might be a, a coincidence, It probably is. I don't think it is. But I I was like, because I've had this conversation with a friend of mine Mm -hmm. who struggles with panic disorder and considering all that the Jewish people have been through historically and how that is imparted to a child. Yeah. Like inevitably you're going to find out about what happened in the mid 20th century. And like, that's a heavy thing to process. I can imagine how that could easily be internalized and cause panic. Yeah, is that too far? Am I reaching too far? No,
1: that's actually a thing that people are studying, and that, um, and I don't have the language for it. I I can totally pretend, but that would be embarrassing for both of us. Um, <laughs>
0: Please go for it.
1: <laughs> so what happens? <laughs> so, um, but trauma is um, handed down. Yeah, and memories of trauma are handed down.
0: Right. I, I, I want to say I was reading something about. Like there's been a study done about this. Yeah. Like if your ancestors yes. went through serious trauma and, you know, yep. you're, you're born carried. down the line, it's carried through.
1: Yeah. And and that makes perfect sense if you think about it. You know, if your if your mom is depressed when she's pregnant with you, you know, the chances are that you're going to inherit some of that that coping mechanism because it's in you while you're growing inside her. But she's also, that's who she is. And that's Ugh. how she's going to raise you. For me, every, I think, you know, my family is anxious. And my mom is anxious. My dad's anxious. My grandma's anxious. My niece has an anxiety disorder. Two of my nieces have anxiety disorders. but
0: So it runs in the family.
1: It does. But it wasn't really, that wasn't picked up until a few years ago that it runs in the family um so basically for me what happened was i think some of it had to do with birth order so i was the youngest of three and when i was around eight months old i guess my parents were were not doing well and i think you know i don't have an answer for how old i was when they split up i have two different answers um my mom says i was two my dad says i was not yet one um so somewhere between eight months and two, they split up, and in that period of time, my mom um, was hospitalized for a potassium deficiency or something like that, and she was separated from us, and my dad was gone. And I think that, I think that was it. Mm-hmm. I think that was the moment that sort of um, where my anxiety organized around this. I can't watch. I can't take my eyes off her
0: because she could leave right how long was she gone for
1: I don't know oh probably not long yeah day yeah
0: yeah, but when you're that young and you're that attached to your mom then Mm -hmm. you know that's how it happens yeah it seems like forever
1: yeah and so but then I think that she also you know the way that she was raised was was by nannies and um her she wasn't very interactive with her mom who was very cold and, um, I think her parents sort of used gifts and stuff to, you know, buy she was her raised drink. like a fluent. Yes. Yeah. Very. Um, and, um, and the way that she raised us was not like that, but it was, she, you know, there was not an emotion like not, um She wasn't, she didn't have the emotional language. Um, and she, she didn't. She was overcompensating for what she didn't get. And so instead of teaching us how to do things for ourselves, she did them for us. And that fed into uh, my anxiety and it fed into my belief that I wasn't capable and couldn't do anything for myself. And it was just the wrong method for me. Right. Um, it was a wrong way to raise me and sort of, you know, and that's why when you have kids, you have to raise the kid you have. You know, and you don't—you can't raise them the way you were raised. That's, I hope you know. I'm
0: not fucking it up.
1: I'll tell you after the show. <laughs> I'll let you know.
0: If you could do an eval
1: because <laughs> oh, my
0: daughter—my daughter has a little bit of anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: That's you know, not your fault.
0: No, I mean, <laughs> I, you know, not terrible, but she does have some separation anxiety from yeah. my wife. I think my wife's an anxious person.
1: Yeah. I
0: don't know, but I mean, not like diagnosed anxious but mm-hmm. like you know some i think everybody's got some of it everyone but i mean i think maybe i'm more in the past
1: mm-hmm.
0: and she's more in the future because anxiety is about future. the future yes and i'm always like rehashing what i did and am i guilty it's like right. all, all the, i'm more guilt than anxiety right okay i think maybe i'll I'm tell both. you after the show also <laughs> we're gonna sit
1: down together you and i after.
0: yeah but you know that is it it's a good point to make that uh, you know, anxiety in some form is part of human experience. Yes. Period. It we is all, natural. Yeah. We all have it. It's it's how we're wired, I think, uh, like from an evolutionary standpoint yeah, to survive. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. we have to have some anxiety, but there is a, such a thing as uh, neurochemistry and nurture conspiring in some combination to create an unmanageable situation.
1: Yes. Very well said.
0: Like debilitating. Yes. But and you write about this when it's undiagnosed and when you're a child and you don't have a language for it mm-hmm. people either don't know what the hell's wrong with you or they don't believe you or you right. don't feel like you have an ability to communicate how you're feeling like that isolation has got to be such a grind
1: yeah it's it's pretty terrible but the other thing that that happens a lot is that when you don't know what's wrong with you and your what's wrong with you is panic and anxiety It feels mortifying and shameful. So you do your best to hide it and fit in. You don't want to be different. You feel so different, and you don't want to. But you can't change it, so you have to create some sort of a character. So I've been playing a person my entire life, and I think that's part of the reason that Happy Ending was so good for me, even though it wasn't that great for me, because I was... Using this, you know, I was able to hide behind this person I had created and built for my who, entire life. Who is this person? Like- it's just me, but it's it's the me that is deflecting. It's the me that is trying to get you to look over there so you won't look in here. And I don't, um, I just, anytime I would try and express how I felt, it was ignored. And... I was very vocal about not wanting to leave my mom. I was very vocal about it, and I, I was just ignored. And so the anxiety that I tried to express was, was completely overlooked. So I was overlooked. And that, to me, you know, telegraphed that, you know, whatever was wrong with me wasn't important enough to other people, or it was embarrassing somehow, and I should hide it. But then what happened was I started to get sent for testing, and they sent me for one IQ test after another, all in an effort to figure out why I wasn't doing well in school. And I wasn't doing well in school because I was panicking.
0: Like, how how bad is not doing well? Very bad. Like, almost failing out? Yes. Okay.
1: Um, I couldn't pay attention. I was so worried that something was happening to my mom.
0: Is there an attention deficit element to... Maybe, maybe,
1: maybe. But,
0: but I can, I mean, I guess i panic is distracting. Yeah. It's going to distract your ability to focus. Oh, yeah. I mean, it seems mm-hmm. like it's baked into the cake.
1: Yeah, it is baked into the <laughs> cake and I didn't get to eat it. But, um, so yeah, I just was, it was unrelenting and it interfered with absolutely everything. And especially my ability to take in information when the, the relentless, like agony of worry wasn't, wasn't answered.
0: How does that manifest? It's voices in your head, it's imagery, it's all of the above. Like, can you describe what it feels like to live with this kind of anxiety?
1: Well, I, um, it's different as a child than as an adult, but as a child, it was... Um,
0: we talked about the floating.
1: Yeah. So, all right. So it feels like... Um, so in the book I have, um, I, I go through a week... Of what panic looks like, you know, Monday through Friday, Monday through Sunday. Here's what the panic, or maybe Monday through Friday. Here's what the panic looks like, and it changed from deep to shallow, and hard to soft, and colors and vibrations and pulses, and so the body was doing its own thing. It was sort of like a, like a go to a disco and like all the light lighting effects and sound effects that was in my body. And in my head were images. Um, I'm not sure the images were that strong though. And the sensation of my overall body was that it was being dragged and someone was trying to, I was trying to be murdered. Like the world was trying to murder me.
0: Is it, is it because I, I, like my friend has like, there's always like strong, I'm dying.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So there's a strong death element yes to panic disorder it's fear of death well or fear of not exist or you know
1: like it's all right so basically what what anxiety is period is it's the inability to tolerate uncertainty and every single day of life is uncertain so it's incredibly difficult to live in an uncertain world when you're terrified of uncertainty
0: most of us i think Go through our lives ignoring that fact, like we have some sort of insulation. Yeah, because well, if you I actually can't. pay attention, yeah, you, I can't. I know. Yeah, but it, like, if you actually stop and think, yeah, like wow, mm-hmm. everything's up in the air every single second,
1: all the time. Yeah,
0: and that's real. Yeah, then all of a sudden you go, "Whoa, I'm feeling a little bit more anxious than I was." <laughs> right. And so then, you sort of forget about it as a as a coping mechanism, just to get through life on a normal.
1: Yeah, I wish I could do that. Yeah, I can't. But it is about death. It's about Fear of other people dying. It's a fear of your death. It's but as you grow older, you start um, associating the feelings of panic, the somatic expression of panic in your body, with ways of dying. So you have all of a sudden realize, oh, I'm I'm having a heart attack. Right. I'm di- I am dying. Have you yeah. ever
0: called nine one one? Like I had. A, oh yeah. I had a friend who's Maybe? like, I'm I'm having a heart attack. Yeah, they rushed her in, and it was like you're fine.
1: If they could have raised me in a hospital, I would have been so happy. <laughs> you know, yeah, I had to go. Um, I, I, this was taken out of the book, but a friend of mine, very very close friend of mine, one of my best friends, um, died. I have I've lost many people in my life, um, and I didn't find out about this person's death for two years and there was was a reason um and when i found out about his death i sort of lost like i just lost can i curse on this thing yeah i i lost my shirt (laughs) (laughs) and i um i i had one of the worst sorry one of the worst panic attacks i've ever had in my life and i called my sister and i said um I'm I'm dying and I need to go to the hospital. And she called an ambulance and she came over to my house and went to the hospital and I, I was throwing up and the doctors were over me saying, what is she on? What is she on? And my sister kept on saying, she's not on anything. She has a panic disorder. And they kept on saying, no, 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 you don't understand. What drug is she on? And my sister said, You don't understand. She has a panic disorder. She's not on anything, and I was like, "This is my entire life over my head." Like, and you know, my sister was sort of representing me, but no one listened or took me seriously. Or,
0: I know my son has health challenges, and so we've been through a million doctor's appointments and like. Mm -hmm until that happened to us and we started to get into that right mode where you're trying to get diagnoses and treatments and like you don't realize how much um uh, uncertainty there can be and poor communication there can be mm-hmm. in the medical realm it is and it is
1: astonishing
0: it is astonishing and it is uh really nerve-wracking yeah um, you know, when people are misdiagnosing you or not believing you or not seeing you or right. you're hearing doctors, like try to figure it out in real time and you're like, wait, you don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, so I feel for you.
1: Yeah. I mean, and they also, they don't communicate with each other. There's no team, you know, it's one specialized, one specialist after another. And I'm like, okay, so you know about the kidney, but you don't know about the organ next to it. Right. Uh, so now I have to go to a liver guy or... But it's so um, it's so sort of broken up in this really strange way. But when I was in my 20s, I spent a lot of time going to the doctor and saying, something is wrong with me. Um, I'm getting sick all the time. I'm throwing up a lot. I'm feeling like I can't leave my house. I'm this and this and this. And they would say, well, I, sw- I swear to... My cough medicine. Um, <laughs> this happened. My doctor would say to me all the time, "Listen to me. You're a woman in your twenties. This is what happens. It's all in your head." And I,
0: good doctor,
1: really good, right? Really. Do you, you know what? <laughs> let me textbook. give you. Let me give you the name so your son can go to him. <laughs> yeah. um, so, I love a
0: good referral. So. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, anything to help. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I remember at one point I. After a while, and I would give him symptoms, and he'd say, yeah, I've never heard of those. And no patient has ever said that to me. And I said, but I'm your patient, and I'm saying it. And, like, I just, I didn't count. And at a certain point, I I realized, you know, they don't know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And saying that something is all in your head is actually a really valid thing To have, to have, to have happen to you. Yeah. Okay. Fix it.
0: Yeah. It's in my head. It's there. Yeah.
1: (laughs) I have a broken arm. What are you going to say? Like, I'm sorry, you're, you're, you know, it's all in your arm. Right. No, you're going to help me. So, you know, it's a, it's a very valid thing to have something be all in your head. That is a real thing.
0: So, okay. And this is a progressive illness, untreated. Like you said, your, your panic disorder started to like hatch little baby panic disorders or whatever. So, it's getting bigger yeah. and more unmanageable. Yeah. I would imagine the episodes are getting more intense yes. and more uh, terrifying and difficult to bear. Yeah. And then you're 25 yeah. when you finally get yeah. a proper diagnosis. Yes. So that must have changed your life.
1: It did. Um, well, when I was 22, my stepfather died, and that triggered a whole new um, layer of panic that I hadn't experienced before. And it was like a type of paranoia where I couldn't walk down the street without thinking someone was going to murder me and I'd have to turn around and go home. And then when I... So that sort of grew and blossomed and became a really unmanageable aspect of my life. And by the time I was 25, I... I became suicidal, and I couldn't leave my house. Oh,
0: okay, because when you say suicidal, it's suicidal ideation. Mm-hmm. Were there attempts?
1: There were no attempts. There were. Um, were there attempts? I, no, there were no attempts.
0: <laughs> you would think you would remember. <laughs>
1: well, <laughs> you know, it is me. I'm oh yeah, there
0: were a couple. Okay, <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> well, I did try and wa- I did walk into traffic at some at one point, and I don't know if it was then. I've been suicidal three times. And that, for, I think that was, this was the first time when I was 25. And I just, I, I, I could not live anymore. I couldn't do it. The world and I were incompatible. This was not going to work out for us. And um, I just needed to break up. I couldn't leave my house. I couldn't um, see anyone without having these horrible, terrifying episodes. And they lasted for hours. And they would happen like eight times a day and it was relentless. And I just thought I got to find a way out. And I, um, I did think about ways to kill myself. I just, I didn't want to be, I didn't want to hurt. I didn't want to be in pain. Right. So I was like, no, that'll hurt. No, that'll hurt. No, that'll hurt. And you know, and I was like, yeah, but I'll be dead. So what does it matter? No, I really don't want to go out in pain. Um, I think that I sort of ended up thinking, I'm going to go to um, a doctor and get sleeping pills. And that was sort of the, the way that I was going to do it. And so what ended up happening was that I, um, I was in this terrible state, and I, I didn't know how to get out of it. And I called my mom, and I said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do something to myself, and I'm scared and she made an appointment with her therapist, and I went to her therapist the next day. And in under two minutes, this guy diagnosed me, and I, I couldn't believe it. It was the most matter-of-fact two minutes of my life, and it felt like.
0: Well, and what did he say?
1: Well, he he asked me questions, and he you know he said w- what happens. Um, describe the feelings, how long has this been happening? And I said, well, since I was a baby. And he said, I I don't understand. You know, how did this go undiagnosed for so long? And I was like, I don't know, dude. Um, That's not really what I said. (laughs) (laughs) Um, mm, So I said, you know, how long had it been going on? And and he said, well, you you have a panic disorder. And... As soon as he said that I it was almost like there was a word I'd been looking for for 25 years and it was panic. And that was the word. And I just finally like made sense and I felt like the top on me had been turned tighter. I was being contained like you know and in a way that was helpful and great and so Just that alone. Yes. Just being seen. Yes.
0: Yes, right? like being fully heard,
1: seen. seen, taken seriously, not saying it's all in your head, you know, not giving me a test. Um, yeah, seeing the person who's speaking the words and believing me. So it was life-changing. And he sent me to another doctor to get on medication. And I took the medication and I slowly started to get better. So he sent me to someone to go on medication. I went on medication. But what I didn't do was go to a, a talk like a therapist. I just went on the medication and it wasn't enough to do that alone. So I, um, I sort of went up and down, up and down for a few years. And then I ended up in my 30s going to a therapist. And it took a really long time. You got to, to find
0: you got to find the right therapist. You do. Did yeah. you have to go through multiples? Or oh you, yeah, you did. Oh yeah, and then you find one that really hears you and yeah. gets you, and like that's got to be yeah. such a wonderful thing to have.
1: Yeah, she's amazing. I, I still you're still with her. Oh yeah, and she, every time I see her, she goes, "You know, we've been seeing each other a very long time," and I'm like, <laughs> "What are you trying to tell me?" <laughs> very upsetting.
0: Well, I mean, that's the thing, though, is that. Uh, I mean, isn't there some point at which like you're supposed to kind of like move away or because you can keep the, it's up to you. If you want to keep seeing the therapist. Is this why
1: I'm here? I don't know. (laughs) You're going to tell me, is this, oh my God, it's It's over. over. Yes. (laughs) I don't know if I'm ready. Um, (laughs) But but no,
0: I'm just asking like, like, is that something that's in your mind or you're like, you know what? I like this as a maintenance thing.
1: It's yeah. It's like an allergy shot. It's like a maintenance. Yeah. Um, I have tried going like twice a month. I've been doing that for a while. And it's fine, except for when it's not. And the fact that it's sometimes not fine tells me that, okay.
0: You need to keep going. I need
1: to keep going. Sure. Um, I need it. It's part of my medication. You know, it's part of the protocol for me that works. Um, and, yeah, I, I do think about, I do, it's in the back of my head, you know, like, when am I supposed to stop this? And I don't think there's any rules. feel like there might be really well i don't think so
0: i've never heard of any like hard fast rule
1: i don't think there are but i think it's part of the um part of your therapy is ending therapy
0: to get yeah but like okay so where are you spiritually i mean i know you're jewish like culturally but are you also do you practice i'm
1: extremely advanced
0: are you (laughs) you're a rabbi (laughs) but uh
1: Actually, (laughs) I do have a friend who calls me rabbi. Oh, really? Uh Uh-huh.
0: I feel like there's something vaguely rabbinical about you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you? No, but it's because, here's why. I think it's because you've suffered so much, and you've Uh, done a lot of hard work, and I think people who have been through a lot Mm -hmm. tend to carry uh, some sort of vibe that feels especially people who can still laugh on the other side of it. You know, it's one thing to have been through a lot of stuff and you're just like shell shocked and catatonic, but if you come through it all and you still can smile, I think there's a lot of uh, comfort in that for people because Mm -hmm. it's like, Oh, like you can survive. I don't know. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I
1: do. I mean, I am weeping inside, (laughs) Um, but I spiritual, I don't relate to that word so much um,
0: it's a bad word but it i don't is know a what bad else, word, i don't know what else to say but so
1: is triggering and i sometimes use that yeah um, i don't we'll talk about this after too, what word to swap <laughs> it out with but i am what am i i'm aware okay i'm um, i have a pretty sort of sharp sense of consciousness i guess i'm i meditate um I don't do it as much as I should but when I do it it's really um powerful and I feel How so? I I um well I all right there's one meditation that I do and it's Jack Cornfield getting, is it Cornfield or Cornfeld? Yeah. Cornfield. And it's actually on my website because it doesn't have a name, but it it's a, a guided meditation. And he talks you through... Um, He's
0: got a very soothing voice. Oh, it's so soothing. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but he does something that I need, which is to tell me how to work the world. How do I work it? You know, no one taught me. No one taught me how to do anything. So no basic life skills at all. No medium life skills and certainly no advanced ones. But so what his meditation does is it walks you through a difficult moment and tells you tells you what to do by putting yourself in your body in a way that works for me and I'm so emotional and sensitive and um, I feel things very powerfully and and a lot so
0: feelings can be really overwhelming oh my God you know yeah like last night. I was like it was like almost bedtime and i was like getting ready to like lock up yeah you know and the dog my dog twiggy had like there's like my daughter has dolls she's eight years old like the the doll clothes she -hmm. had doll clothes in her mouth yeah what's wrong with that i was like i was like twiggy drop it like come here right drop it and she looked at me and like just like it was like a stare down and i was like you better drop it and then she just like ran upstairs with it and i was like okay and I ran up, I, won, I walked upstairs and she was like, she ran into her crate because she knew I was pissed. <laughs> and I like grabbed her like a little too strongly and um. pulled her out of the crate and grabbed the, do- and then like got the doll clothes out, said something to her, then walked over to like close the bedroom door. And as I was doing it, I was like, what the hell did I just do?
1: You traumatized me is what you yeah. just did. <laughs> like,
0: but I mean, like, I'm like the, the point that I'm trying to make, and this happens to me more than I would care to admit, is that like I got caught. Right. In that anger, yeah. and it's so stupid because it was just doll clothes. It was not a big deal, right? But I was like, you should listen to me. Like somehow that was a violation, right? You but know? that's
1: your cue. Like, yeah. I mean, I think that that's the key is that learning how to recognize what your what your feelings are telling you. Yeah, and they're not, and they're literally feelings. Without oh, the be, without, tugging, without
0: becoming them.
1: Yes. Yeah. The tugging in the chest means this. Yeah. The you know the throbbing in the stomach means this. Um, I think that's the key. And that is what this meditation sort of walks you through. Right. And, and since, it doesn't have
0: a name, but it's on your website. Yeah. And you know, the reason I ask you about the spiritual stuff is cause like this originally, this originated in the conversation about whether or not you're supposed to quit therapy or you should, right. you know, all this kind of stuff, you know, some people, they have uh, two glasses of wine a day. Some people, they read obsessively. Some people are manic exercises. It's some right. combination. Some people meditate. Some people, whatever it is. They some people go to church every Sunday. Right. Like, I think it's absolutely normal and even healthy. Or, or at least, like, I, I can't imagine functioning in life without some cobbling together some system of wellness and mm-hmm. self-care. As a way to cope with the difficulties of life. Yeah. And if it happens to be that talk therapy is a key component of that, go with it. Like there's no finite nature to it. Like,
1: yeah, right. Yeah. You know what? (laughs) Yes. Thank you.
0: I just feel like it seems like such a nice, healthy thing to do. I concur. Yeah.
1: You know, it's interesting though, because I, um, something I do talk about in therapy is my resistance to getting well. I have a really hard time with that self-care with uh getting myself to the gym getting myself to feel better and even though i know what to do and i know that i do feel better when i go to the gym when i meditate when i move um but there is a real resistance and it's
0: what is it why is it there do you know could you understand it
1: not yet but i think a lot of the resistance has to do with the way i was raised to um i i was never taught how to manage my emotions and i was never taught i was always i was the messages that were sent to me was the world is too scary you can't handle it and um something is broken in you and we're trying to find the fix so there's always some external fix and i think that 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 is why there's a resistance because I'm waiting for like the pill Mm -hmm. that will make me well. Yeah, and and I was raised that way. And it's been very difficult to change the relationship that I have with wellness. And I've been successful in pockets of time and then it'll just, you know, unravel. And I'll be like, oh, but the Real Housewives are on. (laughs) (laughs) So... Um, but you know, I have a dog and we go for walks, but it's New York. I you know, there's you walk no... a
0: lot. New York's actually very, in a, in a lot of ways, a healthy place to live because of all the walking.
1: Yeah. Until yeah. you get lazy.
0: Until you get lazy and then you're just in a cab everywhere. Yeah. On the, subway. on the
1: subway or, you know, but also then there's winter and you don't, you know, I just, in winter, I just want to open my window and hold my dog outside yeah. and just be like, just do what you need <laughs> to do and I'll bring you back in.
0: What kind of dog you got?
1: She is, a a rescue, so I'm not entirely sure, but I think she's, uh, consensus has her as a poodle Avanese, okay. maybe some lapso So up, a small dog. So yeah. Small dog. Yeah.
0: Um, so let's talk about getting from diagnosis and, you know, beginning a program of care that's actually effective. Mm-hmm. That's a combination of medicine and talk therapy and, you know, whatever you, um, you're doing the happy ending events Mm -hmm. you're sort of uh, getting well but you're also avoiding writing right and at some point you broke through that Mm -hmm. and we talked a little bit about this at the top but i want to get more intel or like more insight into how you got through Uh and got this book written and published um like what did you learn about um The I guess the emotional content of what was holding you back. I guess it's just it's Hmm. it's fear of rejection of not being good enough. Yeah, it's not wanting to confront your suffering, which you have to do, Mm -hmm. especially in a book like this. Right, you have to really you do take a long look.
1: I know. Um, Yeah, and it's it's also um, having other people see it and judging you. A lot of it is judgment and um, being criticized for who I am and not be, and fearing that i wasn't i'm not able to bear that um, a lot of it is just underestimating my own abilities and my own strengths and um, so i what was the question? No,
0: just like the emotional doesn't <laughs>
1: is hitting. Yeah,
0: starting to take hold. <laughs> you can see just this haze um, descending. <laughs> but no, it's more about talking about um, you know getting from I'm doing happy ending and avoiding writing right. to like I'm actually getting through the work. Like because I think whether people struggle with panic disorder or not, um, people who are writerly, right. you know, I'm thinking of people listening to this show, um, avoiding one's work. Yeah. And having these anxieties about, you know, people judging and like, I think that's common to a lot of, a lot of us. And so just, I'm interested, especially as somebody who's done a lot of work on herself Mm -hmm. and might have a language for it. Like what, what was it that helped you break through?
1: Well, I think a lot of it was, I mean, a lot of it was going to therapy and my therapist really believing that I could do it. And, um, and also, I what I do have something that is... I have, like, a very strong willpower. And um, I'm very, very hard on myself, so I will push myself to the fork and brink. And I... <laughs> I like not cursing, even though I'm allowed.
0: <laughs> Just say frick. We like frick here.
1: <laughs> no, frick is... Everyone fricks. Oh, yeah. No yeah. one forks. No one forks. <laughs> um, so I... I almost always, almost always, without fail, do the hard thing first. I just get it out of the way. And that's how I approached it. I sort of thought, you know what? I am aging rapidly. And I don't want... I also telecast myself sort of in the... Is that right? Forecast, telecast? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I see.
1: One of the casts. I cast myself in the future and I look back from, you know, age like 90 and I think, what would, what would I think then about the choice I'm making now? And that helps. That really helps because if you're not proud of yourself looking back, if you're like you, if when you look back you think you could have done that, like I'm, that sucks that you didn't do it. Then I do it, and I, I that's sort of how I addressed it. I just thought I'm, I'm really, I'm didn't achieve what I wanted to achieve when I wanted to achieve it because I was afraid. So. Do you want to do you want to try or not? And that's sort of the question. Do you want to make the effort? Forget about failing or succeeding. Do you want to make the effort? And I did. I wanted to make the effort, and so I did the hard thing first, and I forced myself to write this book. And it took four and a half years, and it was really painful.
0: And writing this book was the hard thing. Yeah, it wasn't just like some component of the writing process. Like you didn't take on the hardest chapter first. No. Just, you're Just like, writing the book. Of all the difficulties in my life, writing the book is the biggest challenge, and I'm going to do it first. Yes. And when you say I'm going to do it first, does that mean that it, um, you carved out a certain time of the day that gave it priority? Was it like, I'm doing this in the morning right when I wake up?
1: It was, I am going to stop doing happy ending uh, in order to do this. And I was writing children's books under a pseudonym and
0: What's your pseudonym? Can we know? Oh,
1: Jesus. Yes. It's J.K. Rowling. <laughs> I was going to um, say it's Le- <laughs> Lemony Snicket. <laughs> yeah. I do both. Yeah. <laughs> I'm extremely busy. um It is A.J. Stern. And then I have like um an Irish Jewish one that's Fiona Rosenblum. Uh-huh. And the A.J. Stern books, I wrote nine of them. I wrote two of the other ones, but the nine books done pretty well. And I get royalties, which is really nice. And, um, you know, I, I, I made some money from them. So I saved up some of that money. And I gave myself time to face this and do it. I ran out of money and lived like, you know, a 21 year old for about a year and a half um, and borrowed a lot of money from people. Not a lot, but, you know. You had to get by. Yeah. But I really did. I, I borrowed money from a lot of friends at different points of time. And I really, I forced myself to write my second book. It really all that was about was my second book. You know, my first book, my first adult book came out in 2003. And I'm still trying to figure out what happened. I'm trying to figure out how... I got so afraid after that.
0: I'm in like the almost the exact same boat cuz I, I published, you know, a few a couple of years after that, but then it's taken me a long like time. Like 13
1: years, right?
0: Yeah, but a lot has happened. Like I don't know how afraid I am or if I just got distracted. Like I feel like I have a lot of interests. Yeah. I get excited about these projects like the podcast sure. and the website and I have job stuff. I started a family. So it's like you know, it's right. not crazy that it's taken me that long. No, but I also can sometimes be like, "What's wrong with you? Like, get this shit done."
1: I think a lot of it is avoidance. <laughs> yeah, you know, even if you, it's even if you're filling your time with good things, like I think Happy Ending was was really valuable for me in a lot of ways. I'm not bummed I did it. I'm really happy I did it.
0: For those of you listening, Amanda's going to convince me to quit the podcast here by the end of this episode. This I'm, is the final episode. I might,
1: <laughs> and then I'm taking over. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'd be pretty good at this. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I just, I, I don't. I really don't know what happened. I got scared. I got scared, and I think a, I, I think what happened was I started happy ending and. I started to know writers, whereas I didn't know any before. I was just green and innocent and knew nothing about the writing world. And that gave me freedom. But as soon as I started to meet other writers and agents and editors and became part of that world, I, something happened. And I succumbed to my anxiety and my fear, and I avoided Doing the next thing because I felt like, oh, I've all of a sudden, not that all I had all these eyes on me, but I knew more people whose eyes would, you know, potentially be reading the book. And even if they didn't, it's in my imagination, they did. Um, and it just scared me. It scared me away. And I just went, you know, full throttle into happy ending.
0: And then your friend pulls you aside, sits you down and says, what are we going to do with the rest of your year? Sort of like calls you out.
1: Yeah. Because I had been saying, um, I would say, all right, this is it. This is the last year. Then I'm quitting and I'm finishing my book. Okay, this is it. This is the last year. And I was doing that over and over. And finally she was like, hey, guess what? This is your last year. And You know, I I guess I had said something to her, like, if I'm still doing this when I'm 65, which I am, (laughs) (laughs) um, please, you know, put a stop to it. Yeah. So she basically put a stop to it and we planned out my year. Who is
0: this friend? Can we name her?
1: Uh, I hope she doesn't mind. Uh, Her name is Nellie Reifler. Okay. She's a very dear friend. She's also an amazing writer. Um, she has two books out, See Through, a collection of stories, and Elect H. Mouse State Senator, I think. Okay. Um, but she's wonderful, and I love her dearly. And she really helped me figure out um, how to stop doing happy ending and how to take myself seriously. And I think that's what it was. I wasn't taking my work I wasn't taking myself seriously I wasn't taking myself as a writer seriously um I was too afraid that I wasn't good enough that I was you know I didn't I don't have an MFA I didn't study writing I I just felt like a fraud in a way that I know everyone else does but because I have this anxiety disorder it felt much more pronounced and like more was at stake even though less was at stake yeah um so, yeah, it was very, are you starting to worry now? <laughs> like, I see it in your eyes. <laughs> no, it's, like, no
0: it's, it's good. It's instructive. I mean, I don't know if it's exactly one for one the same, but um, it's a similar struggle. Yeah. And I think that my problem might be thinking that I can do it all. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm like, I can get it all done. I can do it all. And like, then but I'm like... you might be able to. I may be, but I'm also like, I get up at 4 a.m. I can't, you know... I go to bed at, I'm like, I'm running myself like crazy to try to get all of these like I's dotted and T's crossed. I'm like, there are times where I'm like, dude, I just need like a, a Sunday to, to just lie down in a silent, dark room.
1: But that's, what's going to happen. What's going to happen is you're going to reach that point where you're going to say, okay, something has to give. Yeah. And I, I reached that point all the time. I just never gave anything ever. Right. Yeah. But I would say it all the time. But And I would say, but I can't give anything up. I can't. It's impossible. I can't. And of course you can. It's just, you have to pick. Yeah. I mean, family, get rid of them. Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) Who needs them? Uh, Yeah.
0: But it's like, I really love this show. I'm like, didn't you love Happy Ending? I loved
1: it. I loved it. But I loved it. But I had, it's a different experience. Because Happy Ending was a kind of a big production. You know? Yeah. for one person. It, yeah. It was a lot.
0: That's a lot of logistics.
1: Yeah. And it was, I was putting on like a live event and yeah. it was like, I wanted it to be an experience and it was, but man, it was hard. Yeah. You know, that's. This like, isn't as
0: taxing. This is just like somebody comes over.
1: No, this is great. I yeah. mean, I I don't think that this has to give. I really don't. I hope not. I don't think it does. Yeah. I, I think that you'll figure out where to carve out that time it's also maybe maybe everything around the book is not the problem maybe it's the book is not the right book
0: you know I had somebody say, like who is it like Jamie Attenberg who was on the show like mm-hmm. after we recorded she's like just write something funny write a funny novel about like coming of age or mm-hmm. a college novel or you know she's like you're funny write us something funny and I thought yeah like I could do that but then I've got this book which is basically like not to make this about me. Let's make it about you. <laughs> <laughs> but it's uh it's like t- me trying it's sort of like your memoir like what you said earlier about like I got to get this out of me yeah. before I can get to something else.
1: Right. Yeah. That's
0: where I'm at. Like I got to write about uh what we've been through mm-hmm. with my son. I got to write about at least in some degree like the spiritual crisis of that if for lack of a better way of putting right. it and articulate that and get it. I got to externalize that somehow. Mm -hmm. And I've been fighting with it for so long. Like temperamentally, I'm not a quitter. I'm like, I'm going to get it. I'm going to get it. And it keeps beating me. And I'm like, okay, I'll get up. I'll get it again. I'm like, I'm just going to be victorious or die. (laughs) One of the two. (laughs) (laughs)
1: But what is it that you're not? What is it that you have to get?
0: I have to render it in a way that is both deeply felt honest and hopefully a little bit funny Mm -hmm. and it's very heavy subject matter yeah because it's like my child and then that we had five miscarriages and like been through that and a buddy of mine died and like it's all this stuff it's a lot it's grief and loss and illness and your kid is imperiled and you know all that yeah and so it's like how do you put that on the page in a way that is right and when i say right i mean right for me and that's, just, it's hard. It's, it should be challenging.
1: Yeah. But are you also expecting that every sentence you write is the sentence? You know, are you, are you putting too much of a burden on the first pass of this book?
0: Possibly. You want to know what you honestly want to know? I answer? really do. Okay. Yeah. So I think I was a person who was editing as he went. Mm-hmm to a degree that was excessive. I was constantly kind of like rehashing every day. I would start over reread what I had written and it was becoming overwrought. Mm -hmm. Um, and I wasn't permitting myself enough creative freedom to just be expressive, like on the page, emotionally unfettered, Mm -hmm. not thinking about judgment. Right. And so I, I have a lot of pages Mm -hmm. stacked up Yeah. But lately, what I've been doing as an experiment, and I feel like it's been successful, if not, I mean, I'm in the process of getting ready to go revisit and start the editing and assembling. Mm -hmm. But for the past couple of months, I have been doing what I call closed eye sessions, Mm -hmm. where I stand in this room, Mm -hmm. I have a stand up desk and I oh, that's what that is yeah thank yeah. you oh my god you didn't know what that was no, I wish I had a <laughs> lot of ideas the, I'm going to waterboard you after
1: <laughs> can I sign <laughs> yeah,
0: it <laughs> yeah. I want your autograph um, on the torture device but um, anyway I stand up at this desk and I I call them closed eye sessions and I turn the recorder on and I just talk with my eyes closed
1: mm-hmm.
0: almost like in a therapeutic mode
1: yeah that's great but
0: like hyper candid yeah like that's the exercise yeah and then I trans I have them transcribed uh-huh uh, immediately there's a transcription service that's sort of like this crazy ai and you just send the file in and it, sh- it spits back and uh like not a perfect transcript mm-hmm. but good enough and i just file it away i don't allow myself to look at it or touch interesting. it interesting okay so this is me letting myself write a shitty first draft yeah and not permit myself to get in there and start mucking around with it before i've gotten like the the bulk of it out Right. And I was able to generate like 200,000 words in two months.
1: That's amazing.
0: I mean, we'll see when I re- when I revisit it.
1: No, it is amazing. The fact that you got that much out is amazing. You can't look at the whole thing at once. Just yeah. one thing at a time.
0: And the beauty is these transcripts are each individual, they're, they're each individual documents. It's not one big behemoth 200,000 word document. Right. So when I go back through the editing process, there's a certain inherent discipline to only being able to look at like one session per session. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So that's where I'm at and we'll see what it yields. But like, I'm hopeful that this will be the time and that the, and like these sessions have been like emotional Mm -hmm. in a way that writing never was fascinating because writing, I was like, I was very like, you're able to be slow and you can use the delete Mm -hmm. key and you can and then like, I'm fucking with the fonts and how it looks on the page right. yeah. and I'm like, oh, it looks like a book. And oh, you know what boy, I'm saying? Dance. Every, yeah. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. But with this, like it would just stuff would come out and all of a sudden I'd be like, oh my God, I'm getting choked up.
1: That's standing good. in my
0: garage with my eyes closed.
1: At your waterboard. At my
0: waterboard. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, that's, I mean, this is way too much about me, but it's of a piece with anxiety. It's of a piece with, um, the challenges that you went through in making this book. So it's helpful to me to hear your story.
1: Do you know the end of your story?
0: Kind of no. I mean, it's like, I would love to, because I feel like then I would be writing towards a target yeah. and that's always helpful. And like, I've thought like maybe when my son takes his first steps, cause he's going to be three next week. Okay. He still doesn't walk. Okay. And like, that's as a parent, you're like, you know, he should be walking right. a year ago at least. Uh-huh. Um, so maybe that would be a cute ending. Right. But like, I feel like, I mean, after all these years, all these drafts, all these failed attempts, all these pages, like if I can't find the right moment to end it, like I got to be able to f- intuit that. Right. It's going to be a moment. It's not going to be, I don't think a conventional narrative. Like I, or I don't know what to, I don't know. How, I shouldn't even say that. I got to write it and get it down on paper. Yeah. Find the end that works and then see you know then hand it to my agent and see what happens <laughs> has
1: anyone read any of this yeah
0: i mean my agent is the my reader um and we i wrote a version of it and it was like just too sad
1: mm-hmm.
0: like people were just like i think people were reading and they're like oh this is good writing and like oh this is you know some of these scenes are like very affecting and some of there's some funny stuff but like
1: but i want to kill myself
0: but i want to kill myself yeah. and you know what i think they're right Mm -hmm. Like, I don't argue with it because that's sort of like on reflection, I reread it, especially after some time has passed and it's gone cold. And I'm like, I just wasn't able to alchemize it quite yet. Maybe I didn't have enough distance. Like that was
1: my struggle too. It was hard
0: because you wrote, you know, you got diagnosed at 25, you go through all these years of happy ending. You sort of had envisioned yourself probably having literary success at a much earlier point in your life. Yeah. Yeah. But sometimes you need to go through all this stuff and you need that benefit of time in order to have the perspective to render it in a way that's palatable to write or readers.
1: Right. Except for, I, you know, I did. So there's two, there's, uh, the past and the present and the present in the book. I don't have that much perspective on. And that was the hardest part for me to write. That is the part that tortured me. Mm. The past I wrote quickly. Yeah. And. And then I was like, "Okay, I'm done with that. I guess I'll just write it again." And <laughs> so I did. I like wrote it again in, yeah. in a new way. And I was like, "Okay, I'm done with that. Let's do it again." Yeah. I just couldn't. I couldn't get to the end, or the the present. I couldn't figure out what that story was. And
0: the present is the end.
1: Well, the present. No, there's a storyline, and the storyline of the present is is trying to find a family, wanting to have a family. Yeah. And I'm in that. You know, uh, I'm not as in it as I was, but, um, but it was much harder to write about when you're, you're living it. And what I learned after the fact was that I have to know um, where I'm going. I have to know what the end is. I have to know what I'm writing towards, because yeah. otherwise I'll never finish. Yeah. And that end can change. But I need a place to land. Just for me as a writer and me as an anxious person, I can't That's have that future. uncertainty. Like, wh- yes. where am I
0: going? What's that? You need yeah. like some uh, certainty.
1: Yes, I yeah. needed it. Yeah. And so with the, you know, I'm I'm going to start a new project soon. And I told my agent the other day, you know, I'm doing the thing that I really don't want to do and I hate doing, which is outlining. And I don't even know how to do that. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. I'm just going to fake does. it. I think one person. One pr- does.
0: nobody likes that person anyway. Oh, my God,
1: I hate that person. Um, But I, I, yeah, make that little cough part of my (laughs) speech. It almost sounded like a chuckle. (laughs) That's what I should have been doing the whole time. So what Brad is doing is he's writing down every single time I cough because he has to go through this entire interview and edit out the times I cough. And I understand this tedium. I get it.
0: Have you edited audio before?
1: No, but I've edited. I just, I feel like my life is this. Happy ending was this. Yeah. All the time. And, um, I also just heard my New York accent, um, which I didn't know I had until I said all.
0: I was going to say too, accents tend to come out after you've had a few drinks.
1: Well, Robitussin, Robitussin, robitussin.
0: but, uh, no, but what it made me think, and I'm going to be, you know, working out a sequence here, but going back to, um, the earlier, you you know, earlier part of your life, pre-diagnosis, maybe in the years after the diagnosis, where as an anxious person, I would imagine that like self-medication is a way to, to tamp that. down. Hello. Yeah.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I loved me some cocaine.
0: But that, does, that seems like the drug that would make you even more anxious.
1: You would think, right? But that's what you think with Ritalin and ADHD. Oh, right. Right? Yeah. Uh, basically, cocaine was the, like one of my great loves. It solved me. It, and I, I, I became very enthusiastic about it, let's say, when I was about 17. And I was getting it free from a teacher was quite inappropriate with me in other ways. That's in the book. Um, and he was considerably older um, and I was underage, but um, but he had great coke. And <laughs> he, um, it solved me. It made me feel invincible. It made me feel fearless. I felt like the person I imagined everyone else to be. And I knew that that's the person I wanted to become. And in some ways my persona is based on that. You know, it's based on this person who nothing bothers her. She's cool. She bring it. Yeah. You know? My persona is my cocaine persona. <laughs> basically. You gotta get you gotta get it from somewhere, I yeah. guess. You know, it was a perfect place to, you know, steal from. So um but yeah, self medication has been a very big theme in my life. And um and then I had a big pot phase, and um, now I'm sort of interested in microdosing.
0: Are you doing that? I've tried it. Okay, because I am so fascinated with it.
1: Well, I have some on me. Oh, do you- <laughs> no, I'm kidding.
0: I don't. <laughs> no, but I, because like, you know, did, did you read Ayelet Waldman's book? about? No, but I know about it. Like A Really Good Day, I think it's called. Yeah. But she was struggling with Depression, depression. yeah. Maybe some anxiety, but I think depression yeah. was her thing.
1: Yeah, her and, drug of choice. And
0: had been, yeah, and had both had been on all sorts of different meds. Yeah,
1: and
0: just got to a point where it was unmanageable, and she was at her wit's end, and was like, "I am miserable." Yeah, and she tried this, and it freaking changed her life for Amazing. the better. Amazing. And I don't know if it's like a, you know, I don't want to represent it as like some sort of uh, panacea. Is that how you pronounce that word? Yeah. You know, uh, that's going to be it's going to have the same effect for everyone, mm-hmm. but. As people who listen to this show know, like uh, one of my recurring, uh, obsessions or, you know, things that I'm very interested in is psychedelics, mm-hmm. like sacred medicines. Right. I really believe that they are that if used properly in the right setting with the right help.
1: Have you done ayahuasca?
0: No. Have you?
1: I can't. Yeah. because
0: like, I can't. Okay. But neurochemically do psychedelics, like, are they off limits or can they be done for me for you?
1: Um, Yeah, because I will panic beyond any panic I've ever experienced in my life.
0: But a microdose. That's fine. That's fine.
1: Yeah. But the only problem with microdosing, I'm on antidepressants. Right. So uh, you probably know more about this because you have the Michael Pollan book over there. I don't know.
0: I I tore through it.
1: I can't. I'm stealing it. (laughs) Um, But um, you, it, it does something to your, to the serotonin, right? To your serotonin levels or it rewires your brain structure, something it makes you einstein i don't know but (laughs) that's what i'm going for at least yeah, right um so if you're on um ssris it's not really going to do much for you so it didn't do much for me but i did feel a level of happiness that is extremely rare for me um i also tried edibles and there's only one that has pot edibles yeah. There's only one that's ever worked for me. Huh. And Which I can't one find is... it anywhere. <laughs> if you're listening. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's called Lulu's um what is it called? Lulu's something love. Lulu's chocolate. It's like artisanal chocolate. And it's made by Lulu's. One love. of
0: my listeners has got to be able to source it. Love.
1: This. It's love. It's called love. It's not a rouse. It's not a wake. <laughs> it's not Tazo tea. It's love. Okay. Anyway, I tried that and it was a true miracle. Was it
0: like an indica or sativa Is it an upper? Or down it was,
1: I don't know, but it was, I know the ratio was one to one,
0: like one, one THC, CBD. One CBD. To, yeah. 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 I mean, I have a hard time getting like, I, I have this fantasy of being like the elegant pothead guy. Mm, um, that's hard. But it's, I just, I get stupid or yeah. I get like to the point where I'm like laughing uncontrollably. I don't. <laughs> that'd
1: be fun. It's
0: fun sometimes, but like sometimes it's like, like okay. on
1: air, that'd be great.
0: Yeah. Right. People would love that. <laughs> the stoned edition. <laughs>
1: I'll come for that. We
0: do that for the holiday episode. <laughs> but uh, like, I don't do anything anymore. Like I, I, like my, I, I will have a glass of wine now if somebody gives one to me. Right. That's my rule. I used to have like two glasses of wine every day. I kind of torture myself with this because I'm really not a problematic person with substance. Right. But I, like, I'm like i hard on myself and mm-hmm. I don't want to have like a crutch. Right. So now I don't drink at night. But if I'm like out at a dinner and someone's like, you, you know, I'll have wine.
1: Mm-hmm. If
0: like somebody comes up to me and it's like, here, I'll be Right. Like, thanks. Right. For the... Wine. Or... See,
1: I would just start going, <laughs> um, can you give me some wine? <laughs> because technically that person gives Because you, technically
0: yeah. you just gave it Anyone to me. Anyone
1: here wants to give me wine? <laughs> feel free to just give me wine.
0: I'm not that hard on myself. But like I also have been getting up super early. I just can't do it. No. You yeah. Know? So it's, and it's fine. I don't miss it at all. I don't care. Um, but I am interested in seeing what microdosing um, would do like to my creative performance to how mm -hmm. I cope with suffering like I don't want to like get fucked up
1: no but you don't that's the thing Uh,
0: hopefully (laughs) you better get that dose right
1: yeah well there you buy you know like I tried a a chocolate bar with mushrooms in it Uh and you just take like a little square and
0: but what if that square has like a higher concentration Yeah, of the see, stuff? that's a
1: little bit of anxiety right there.
0: Yeah, because then it's like, what if you have to go to work and suddenly you're like...
1: So you don't take it on a day, you have to go to work. <laughs> <laughs> you take it on a on God's day. Yeah,
0: you take it on Sunday fun day.
1: But that's what I thought. I yeah. was worried about that. And um, I took it and I was like, don't...
0: Well, they, I mean, I guess the argument that Ayelet... Well, not, maybe not the argument, but just like the story that Ayelet Waldman tells, I think, is... Am I rem- remembering this right? Like... Substituting the SSRI yes, with yes. the microdose, yeah, so that you no longer need the SSRI. That's what I want
1: to do ultimately.
0: Yeah, and I you... just
1: don't know how to tell my doctors. So if you're listening,
0: well, doctors, listen. That, that's what pisses me off so much about this is that there needs to be study done about this. Yeah, because I would I would posit with a fair degree of confidence that psilocybin or LSD in a microdose is probably healthier in the long run. Oh yeah. Than taking something made by like Pfizer.
1: Well, you know what I've been having? I've been having a lot of memory loss, and I think that it's from being on antidepressants for so long. Um, I really that my word recall is really bad. Um, I, I, I can't remember. <laughs> getting... <laughs> so, I, um, I, you know, I just am at a often at a loss for the right word, and yeah. that is. No bueno. When well, you're that's, a writer, but there have
0: been studies done about that, though. That like the long-term ssri use may lead to memory issues. Yeah, that but, I mean, worries like, me. Know. So who knows? But I just I hope that like whatever like legal red tape there might be to people doing a proper medical evaluation of the yeah. benefits of this stuff, let them do it. Yeah. Like you know, like yeah. microdosing is not going to fuck anybody up. Like let's let people get well. They way, don't
1: want to. It's not. It's not a money maker.
0: Well, and that's also probably not profitable. Yeah, that's what you just said. Um, <laughs> yeah,
1: but you said it better <laughs> because I don't have words anymore.
0: Well, no, I was just thinking like I, like so many thoughts just flooded into my head. I got so angry, but it's like <laughs> you know, you take the microdose. These things are like super cheap to make, and uh, I guess like you also don't need to take them every day, right? The thing about microdosing is like it's like a Monday Friday. Arrangement or something, yeah. And they say like the second day and even maybe the third day can you can experience unu- like
1: unusual sorry. unusual
0: benefits mm. or like unexpected. You know, you take the thing on Monday, you would think by the end of the day your system has sort of washed it, but they're like, no, the next day is even better. Huh. So it's a lower amount of doses needed, which is less money for the right maker.
1: But we don't know what the long term looks like either.
0: No. No, but I mean, like there have not been, for example, except for people like jumping off the second deck at a Pink Floyd show or whatever, thinking they can fly, Mm -hmm. like, like they're non-toxic, these drugs. We know that, like the, the dose that you would need to take to even come close to like, nobody dies from psychedelics. Right it's, they're, they're relatively safe. You can, I mean, you can mangle your psychology. If you don't, if your neurochemistry is not ready for it and you take like a heroic dose, you're in for a long fucking
1: (laughs) couple days. Watch, I'll be the only person to die from it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But no, I mean, I think that there's enough, there's enough evidence in uh, that we know at the very least that these things uh, have a very low toxicity good right or yes. am i using the right word yes
1: well you're asking me yeah, i don't know <laughs>
0: like, I'm, not <laughs> I'm on <doctor> antidepressants
1: <laughs> i don't have word recall
0: so anyway um it's all fascinating it is really good to meet you it's really good to meet you too i'm happy to get the chance to talk with you I actually have to go take my daughter to lunch. Otherwise, I would just keep chatting. Yeah,
1: me too. I have to take my daughter to lunch. Yeah, I'm going to take a daughter, someone's daughter, and then I'll take her to lunch.
0: It's like, yeah, it's a new service. It's like uh, <laughs> yeah. Uber. but
1: uh, Yeah, take someone else's daughter to lunch <laughs> day. Yeah, um,
0: Congratulations. Thank you so much. Best of luck. I need it. And I hope I see you again before too long.
1: Yes, me too. And I can't wait to read your book.
0: Okay, that is Amanda Stern. Her book is called Little Panic, Dispatches from an Anxious Life. It is available from Grand Central Publishing. If you would like to track her down on the internet, you can do so at amandastern.com. Her Twitter handle is at amandastern. She's on Facebook. She's on Instagram. Amanda Stern, Little Panic. Go get your copy now. If you would like to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. If you would like to support the program, patreon.com slash otherppl.com pod don't forget about the other people app it's free it's a great way to listen Uh, oh thanks to kill rock stars and the band stereo total as always for the theme song music thanks to cigarette royalty for the interstitial music I will be back next week with another conversation with another author hope you guys are doing well hope you are not panicking hope you're not like overly anxious it's easy to be anxious these days I think we all have a little bit of that do we not anyway it's nice talking to you I need to go inside and sleep. That's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to walk inside, fall face down, see what happens.